0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. How much does truth matter to you? In particular, how should we think about Christians who hold very different views on key subjects? For example, I'm a biblical Unitarian, someone who believes that we should take Jesus literally when he calls his Father the only true God. Of course, I believe Jesus is God's only begotten Son, the anointed Messiah who died for our sins, but I don't affirm the 4th century doctrine of the Trinity. Some Christians would call me a heretic beyond the pale of fellowship or even salvation, even though I do believe the gospel message with all my heart. Others, however, would say I'm deceived, but would have no problem working together in various areas. Chuck Whitlock, a Bible student, husband, and father of five has been wrestling with precisely these questions over the last five or so years. Having grown up in strong evangelical denominations his whole life, He had to rethink his relationship with mainstream Christianity when he began changing several of his key beliefs. In this interview, we discuss various ways to think about this issue based on Whitlock's paper, which I have in the show notes for this episode. He stakes out a balanced position between writing everyone off who disagrees with him and accepting everyone as brothers and sisters without regard for their beliefs. Here now is interview 40, How Much Does Truth Matter?, with Chuck Whitlock. All right, well, so I thought we would talk about your paper, Truth Matters. What do you think Fantastic. about
1: that? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Before I get to that, I was thinking maybe you could just share a little bit about your own journey of faith. Did you grow up in a, in a Christian home?
1: Yeah, I uh, I grew up a conservative Baptist Um devout conservative Baptist. Uh And uh, we uh, rebelled and went off to uh, John Wimber's Vineyard Movement and uh, then joined the Foursquare folks, which are similar to the Assemblies of God. Uh, We were in Uh Pentecostal circles for like 15 years. And we actually spent some years with the Calvinists because they were homeschoolers, uh, though we never embraced Calvin's ideas. So uh, we've been in Christian circles our entire lives and have taken it very seriously, and it's been uh, an interesting journey.
0: How did we meet? I'm trying to think. I met you at a conference, what, two years ago? Yeah,
1: yep. Um, I've actually been to the Theological Conference uh, in Atlanta four years now, Okay. um, just trying to find more answers. So I've met a few folks in the Biblical Unitarian camp, but uh, we're pretty isolated out here in the West. We've had some contact with uh, the Scattered Brethren Network, but not what you would call organized religion.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. And you're in Oregon?
1: We're in Oregon. We're in the Portland area. Actually outside toward uh, Mount Hood a few miles. Out in the country, out in the rain.
0: And you, uh, you make blacksmiths' forges?
1: <laughs> yeah, we have a, we have a, a small manufacturing business and make and sell blacksmith forges uh, through the internet. So it's so kind of fun.
0: If any of the listeners are looking to purchase a blacksmith forge, you, Chuck are the only guy I know that is is in in the business. So <laughs>
1: get uh, yours today. Get yeah. yours
0: today, definitely. <laughs> um, actually uh blacksmithing is is sort of coming back among the hipsters. You know, they want to get into it.
1: Yep, we've noticed. We've noticed. Sweet. <laughs> We're taking full advantage of that. <laughs> you
0: know. How did you end up at the Theological Conference, Restoration Fellowship's Theological Conference?
1: Well, um, we started looking into the Trinity issue in, in 2012. We had some difficult times in churches, as, as everybody has from time to time. And so it kind of opens the crack to asking some hard questions of everything that you assumed that you knew And uh, the other thing is, is that we have uh, five kids, and they were getting old enough to start asking some hard questions themselves. And it was actually the kids in an apologetics class uh, doing a paper on the Trinity that that, uh, really got the ball uh, rolling. Uh, Of course, we tried to help them with, with the paper and discovered almost nothing to support it with quality evidence. This is a homeschooling class? This is a homeschooling class. You got it. Okay. so, you know, honestly, I was a bit of a coward at first. I I knew it was going to cost us all a lot, but uh, I knew it cost my family a lot. So uh, I kind of hesitated for a while, but uh, eventually bit the bullet and went for it. But it was a difficult road. We've pretty much ended up outside of church entirely. The kids have uh, paid a price and, you know, lost some friends and, and fellowship. There wasn't a lot of friction inside of our family over the doctrine itself, but we've had a lot of discussion about what it means that we hold such different views from the rest of Christianity, and, and that's kind of what this paper is about. By the time you're done with the Trinity, uh, Jesus as God's human son, a model of man that doesn't have natural immortality in the gospel of the kingdom, there isn't really a place for you in the Christian world anymore. So you're kind of left to wonder why and what it means. And uh, you're basically trying to orient yourself after a fairly dramatic change. That's what we're currently struggling with.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it's just sort of like figuring out who you are. And, you know, for me, in my context, on the opposite coast, the East Coast, there are quite a few house churches And, uh, then my own church is a traditional brick and mortar church and more like plywood and siding, but (laughs) (laughs) anyhow, it's, uh, you know, very easy for me being a father of four kids to plug into the community of faith and to stay involved here. You know, my wife, Ruth, she's very much involved in the children's ministry here Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, but you guys are living you don't have access to to a local congregation. So it's like, well, how do you think about yourselves? Let me ask you this when you uh, when you first sort of gave yourself permission to look into this subject and you came to these conclusions, was it pretty easy as far as your your wife and and the kids? I mean, did they did they fight you on it at, at all or no?
1: No, they, they really didn't fight me on it. It it was a lot of uh, drama and understanding that it was going to cost us a lot. Right. But uh, they embraced the process uh, fairly well.
0: Um, Let me ask you this. What about the uh, the church you were going to? Did you talk to the pastor or any of the elders, or did you just stop going?
1: No, I, I've had uh, kind of running conversations with uh, leadership Um, along the way, there wasn't a great dramatic, you know, blow up or anything like that, because I did kind of bow out as I saw the writing on the wall. Uh, you know, my wife has had ongoing fellowship and it, it hasn't created quite a relational crisis for her, but the kids have paid a price and, um, no, there wasn't a lot of drama. I just kind of bowed out and I'm not sure if that was the right thing to do, but, but it seemed inevitable. So Right. That's right. What I you didn't did. want
0: to cause a scene.
1: I didn't. No. Yeah. Uh, although that hasn't prevented me from from talking pointedly about these things with with anyone who will listen. Uh, it's just you know not the sort of thing that you challenge the entire institution with, and have any expectation that they're going to respond to that.
0: So now that you've changed your point of view, you've you've been wrestling with the question of. Who is saved and who's not saved, and how should you think about yourself, and how should you think about other Christians? And I think there is such a wide range of various takes on this sort of a question. You've got the nearly universalist types that say, oh, well, you know, they're all, everyone's going to be fine, you know, you just don't, don't do anything too bad, and God will understand the rest and then you've got, and I'm speaking specifically within biblical Unitarianism, you've got those kind of folks, a lot of, a lot of them, and then you've got, on the opposite side, the super restrictivists, uh, which I, I could use, I mean, there are multiple groups like this, but take, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe, they, you know, they're non-Trinitarian. We would differ with them on quite a few other beliefs, but on that we agree. And their belief is that their organization— is the one, not only the one true church, but that there's no salvation outside of the Watchtower organization. And yeah. I've met other spinoff groups and uh, little groups that are that are like that as well, where it's like, no, you can't just believe the same as us. You have to be part of our group and sort of like recognize our leader. And uh, so those are obviously very extreme positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I... I I think I've probably met people all in between there. So how, how did you really start conceiving of this question and and what was the inspiration behind this uh, paper that you wrote?
1: To be candid, it's been a multi-year conversation with my wife who uh, is a little more inclusive in her uh, position and I'm a little more black and white. And so we've had to kind of hash it out. So, uh, Of course, I've been exposed to um, a lot of the folks, uh, For yourself, for example, and uh, your restoration themes are something that, that have prompted this. And so mostly it's been an internal dialogue within the family. You know, truth matters. We agree on that, but we don't necessarily agree on how much it matters in these specific questions of relating to the rest of Christendom.
0: All right, well, so, let's talk about these questions at the, at the start of your paper here. One is, should we consider those with a self-confessed different God, Savior, Gospel, and hope our brothers? And then the other is, what does it mean that so few are interested in the truth? These are the, the driving questions for your investigation here, right? Absolutely. So as you develop this idea, you've got these different positions, two positions on the relationship between truth and salvation. You've got the low bar, uh, which is, hey, if you confess Jesus as Lord, then you're good. And that's, uh, I guess we would say that's more of like a, a John Locke that Dale Tuggy promoted this uh, a couple of years ago, John Locke position that if somebody says, if somebody confesses Jesus as the Christ, that's it. Uh, anything else that you put on there is extra. Then you have the exclusive position, which you you cited, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, You are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. And Galatians 1, where it talks about preaching another gospel or another Jesus. Between these positions here, let me ask you this. What made you feel uncomfortable taking that low bar position?
1: Well, as I uh, develop further in the paper, the the entire foundation of my process of uh, investigating these truths has been to try to grasp what the apostles believe. And so when I hear them being so vehement and so just really adamant about the importance of truth, I have to take it seriously. That That's kind of what it comes down to. Honestly, I don't care what the truth is. It, I just want to be true to the to my foundation, my foundational uh, perspective.
0: That, it, honestly, that should be everyone's point of view on this subject, but I, I, I don't think I often hear anyone articulating that, to be honest. I mean, people are like, Oh, well, how could you exclude all these people? Or um, how could you, uh, how could you include them? Considering that they have totally different beliefs, you know, everyone, it seems like on this subject is more driven by emotion than they are fidelity to Scripture. I realize that in so many other beliefs, you know, we're always saying, "Oh, we got to get back to the Scripture, look at what what original Christianity believed, and then we want to align ourselves to that." But here, n- nobody seems to be doing that. I found your paper to be a breath of fresh air, to be honest.
1: Well, good. I uh, I'm well aware of the emotional side of it. You know, I I have friends and family and everybody who's still in the Protestant denominations of various sorts and. Uh, so there is a lot of emotion as you as you try to orient yourself and imagine: are they in fact lost? Are they are they close? It's not a question without consequence.
0: Yeah, yeah. When you said, "Hey, I don't really care which way this goes. I just want to be faithful to the Scripture." That is really key because then that frees you to see Scripture for what it really says, um, as opposed to cherry picking a text here or a text there and trying to figure it out that way. As you looked at the apostles, what did you find?
1: I find them being extremely uh, agitated over a different gospel. You know, if, <laughs> you, you have uh, the apostles who, of course, are, are very much oriented around love, uh, essentially damning people uh, repeatedly over this question of a different gospel. And so it ought to make us stop and wonder... You know what would get them so stirred up, and and whether or not we've we've actually grasped uh, their perspective.
0: Can we look at one of those scriptures? Sure. All right, let's take a look at the second John one. You want to you want to read that out? Do you have it in front of you? Sure.
1: Uh, second John one nine through eleven. This is in the ISV. It says everyone who does not remain true to the teaching of the Messiah, but goes beyond it, does not have God. The person who remains true to the teaching of the Messiah has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you but does not present his teachings, do not receive him into your house or even welcome him, because the one who welcomes him shares in his evil deeds.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, you're right. There is a real concern here, in the especially the late 1st century. With Jesus, it seems like everything is still somewhat provisional in the sense that the teaching is not fully understood but uh after his death and resurrection, his ascension, now we have Christianity growing and spreading and you you start to have these spin-off groups, really. It seems like mm-hmm. that's what's going on in the community of John in 1 John especially where he talks about the, these people that were originally with them and then they came out and yeah. then he's like, "Well, they were never really part of us because they went out from us." Mhm. And they're teaching some sort of antinomianism, some sort of just do whatever you want, sins no big deal, and they're teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And it's not exactly clear what they mean by that, but in First John, as, as well as Second John here, you have this idea that as an elder, he's very concerned for his community. He does not want them to get duped. He does not want them to fall into this other teaching that's against or alternate to what the Messiah taught. And he knows what the Messiah taught because he walked with the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, just don't even deal with these people. It seems like that's what he's saying here. Don't invite them in. Don't just don't even associate with them.
1: So our question becomes, would John include the errors of, uh, orthodoxy today in his, in his condemnation?
0: It's hard to say what these people exactly believed. Okay. But this is speculation, but I would imagine that the errors of the so-called orthodoxy today are probably bigger and more I divergent so from any kind of like first, late first century spin-off Christian group. Because, I mean, there are just like layer after layer of basically taking left turns on different doctrines that sort of coalesce together into this heaven and hell at death, eternal torment... Yeah. Th- three persons in one essence, one saved, always saved. I mean, there's just like one after another after another, and they all hold together in this package. Exactly. It's pretty reasonable to say that that is probably farther away today than what they were. Although they did have some wackos early on, especially in the early second century with like the Gnostics and the Valentinians. Mm-hmm. Another text you quote here is First uh, John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Which in the ESV says, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And then right into love again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Uh, so, and, and that's kind of something I saw with your, your whole approach here, Chuck, is that typically the folks that I've met, that are looking to establish strong boundaries are hurt and they're angry yeah. because of how they've been treated. And they're like, well, they're all heretics and they're all going to hell and I, I don't want to have anything to do with them. They're clueless. Or you start using pejorative language or mm-hmm. name calling. That can't be right. That whole, you know, acting out of hurt. Yes.
1: Uh, I mean, it's it's certainly understandable. And I think it's a pro- it's a a uh, phase that anybody goes through who's gone through exiting a, a group that you've been a part of for so long. But of course, the idea is not to stay there. It's to get through that and to get beyond it. And this, um, this paper for me was actually part of that process. I, I, mean, I, I would confess to feeling those feelings, but I, I certainly recognize that <laughs> they're not the sort of thing you want to, you don't want to camp there. You want to get past it.
0: Okay, so then we move on to talk about the method and foundation that leads to the gospel of the kingdom and a unitary theology and a second Adam Christology also dictates separation from those who contradict the words of the apostles. Uh, could, could you talk about that a little bit? What, what is it you're talking about, this uh, same method?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, if I'm wrong about this section, I'm wrong about everything. I, everything seems to rest on this, in my opinion, the, the Biblical Unitarian position is all about believing what Jesus and the Apostles believed, and that uh, it's a way of reading the Bible that is looking for their, their thoughts, their perspective, and uh, rejecting the idea that you can use the Bible to present uh, any idea that you can find words for. So you know, if that is true, if that is the foundation and and the correct way to read the Bible, then uh, it also follows that you're 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 going to have to keep the same methodology in addressing this question when it may be uncomfortable. You're you're going to have to believe what they believe about how to orient yourself around truth and relating to other Christians. Right. Right. Otherwise, you're going to be a hypocrite. Honestly.
0: Right. You don't want to end up using one methodology for one doctrine and then another for another. I mean, that's that's completely inconsistent. And basically what it does is it undermines the methodology as a whole. If If you're not going to apply the same principles across the board, then you're basically admitting that that method, that approach to scripture of saying, well, what do they do and how can I adopt this in my own life and in my own context, whether you're Out in the country or in the city, whether you're in America or in India, you know wherever you are, how do I adopt this or adapt this to my own situation? Adopt and adapt it to my own situation. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to the options before us, you talk about the cultural affinity between biblical Unitarians and orthodoxy, and you say that this cultural affinity works for and against us. Could you talk about that? What What are you getting at there?
1: This is honestly one of the most confusing things about the question, because whether uh, you're talking to an evangelical or, or some other brand of Christianity, it's as though you can have a conversation about the Christian religion and understand everything that each is saying to each other and have like almost agreement across the board. But it's only apparent. It, it's not genuine agreement. And some of it's just culture. Where you're raised in a culture, so you understand the the use of language, you understand the metaphors. So it works for you in that you can have uh, easy conversation. You can talk about their perspective while actually understanding it. But it works against you in some subtle ways because your use of words are not always in agreement. There is equivocation and some other subtle things that it, it just becomes a struggle to talk through a lot of these things.
0: Right. I think of the term Son of God, for example, if I'm talking to an evangelical, what they hear is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity.
1: Very good example, yeah.
0: But what I'm saying is the one that God miraculously (laughs) fathered in the womb (laughs) of Mary. So, I I mean, mean, we have totally different underlying definitions, but we're using the exact same words. Yes.
1: So our experience in, like, um, discussing this with friends and family has been this kind of odd... Conversation where it sounds like you're agreeing with each other, but the whole time you know that you're not. And so you're not really sure what's going on. I mean, you know full well that you don't agree at some very major points, but as the conversation goes on, there's a whole lot of head nodding. It's just difficult.
0: It's difficult, but at the same time, you do believe in evangelizing to Christians, right? Absolutely. Right. Well, there's some people that, that don't believe in that, they will call it sheep stealing and say, oh, well, this person's, they have this term, churched. They're churched. So, you you, you know, what are you doing preaching to them? How, how would you respond to somebody that brought that objection to you?
1: Oh, well, it just is a question of how much truth matters. You know, do you want the clarity uh, that comes with the truth? Do you, do you believe that the power of the gospel is in the gospel and that the, the message matters? The obscured hope that is found throughout the Protestant world is a major barrier to uh, sanctification. It's like, if you don't know the promises of God, you don't know your destiny, it's very hard to, to place yourself in that story and, and to reap the identity benefits that come from that, that will ultimately modify your behavior because you know where you're going, you know the God you serve, you know his promises. And, uh, you know, the apostles are very adamant about that too, that, you know, it is His great and precious promises that are allowing you to participate in His divine nature, and that's where the power is. So, I think these things matter in very practical ways.
0: Right, but there's also the response that someone says, "Well, if it's not a salvation issue, then I'm not going to worry about it."
1: <laughs> well, that's kind of what the rest—that's kind of what the paper is trying to deal with, without getting to the question of who's saved, and that's the struggle. If the truth matters enough that it determines who is saved or not, then that's one thing. If it doesn't matter, then why are you wasting your time, Sean Finnegan, in your ministry? So so, uh, there's a middle ground that the paper kind of tries to take, and that is uh, admitting that you don't actually know and you can't know, but at the same time saying, no, the truth still matters, even if you can't know. The idea is that you can both hold the significance of the truth up and not know uh, the condition of the other person, you can still promote the truth believing that it matters even if you don't know.
0: Even if you don't know if it's salvational?
1: Exactly. Right.
0: I appreciate that approach because a lot of, especially younger Christians uh, from whatever group, are sort of like riding the postmodern wave without realizing it, Mm -hmm. and they're really turning towards much more of an experiential understanding and expression of Christianity where it's like, well, I felt God at that service. And they're more going to make decisions on the basis of that than on the basis of any kind of like modernist, old-school logic and Mm -hmm. history and theology, systematic theology, as opposed to uh maybe narrative theology or something that's a little more uh flexible. Did you know I actually had a, a podcast called Truth Matters?
1: I did. In fact <laughs> I, I followed that that your your ministry has been part of my journey from the beginning. So cool, cool. Yeah. yeah.
0: I found out that John Shaneheit also has a uh, some sort of a, a class or something called Truth Matters but that's more on the postmodernism. I, mine was more doctrinal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh Yeah, I think this is absolutely huge. I think the truth does matter. I think the truth is becoming less and less popular over time. You're just like the truth about anything, because people are so worried that they're going to offend, that they're willing to just accept everyone, no matter what. I'd be curious to think, to to get your take on this. I think the belief there is, well, if I'm accepting of everyone who disagrees with me, then we'll finally be at peace.
1: I think there is some some hope in that but I think there's another part where if if I don't judge you then maybe you won't judge me. And you know, I think there's a great fear of being responsible that if if I let you off the hook then you have to let me off the hook and then we'll all be off the hook and it'll be great.
0: Right, right. But, Let's say for example somebody believes that work is just dumb and that we should nobody should work. Obviously nobody thinks that, well, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> but let's say that's like just a belief that, that's starting to gain popularity. And then uh, you have somebody else that believes that work is really important, is what God made us to do, and in the, even in the Garden of Eden there was work. And so now these two people are having a, a conversation, and if I say to them, oh, well, it's fine for you to believe that work doesn't matter, and the other one says, well, it's fine for you to believe that work does matter, what we're really saying is that we don't believe that what we believe Really matters <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, exactly. So, I, but I think I think then you know the opposite is to say, okay, well, what I believe matters a lot, and you're wrong, and so now I'm going to hold animosity uh, for you in my heart, and I'm going to persecute you, and then like the non-work person is just like, oh, I'm going to vandalize your property because you didn't accept, you know. So we have these two <laughs> polar no. extremes. One is like. Whatever it is doesn't matter, so we just accept each other and sing a song, and then the other side is just like, no, it matters, and that's all it that matters, and I'm not going to talk to you. I feel like there is a third way, isn't there?
1: Yeah, no, where, I do. Uh,
0: where you would have respect.
1: It is it is respect, but it's respect for the individual, but it's also respect for the truth.
0: Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you could have respect for both, I think that's mm-hmm. the, the ultimate position, where it's like, all right, look, I believe this subject matters. So, like, back to theology. I believe it matters that... Jesus is coming to restore the earth as opposed to us going to heaven. I think that does matter.
1: It Um, it absolutely does matter.
0: And then somebody else doesn't believe that that matters. You can believe whatever you want. All right. Well, I think the respectful thing to say is I disagree with you, but I, I recognize your right, if I could put it that way, to hold your own beliefs. And if you really respect somebody's beliefs, then you can you can have that disagreement where you hold the beliefs up to each other and see how see how they do.
1: Ideally, you would be able to enter that disagreement with um, a convincing argument to say, uh, "I see that we disagree, but you know, here's some reasons why I think the truth matters." Right. I mentioned in, in the paper that the truth matters because it's part of devotion that. If you, let's say you're one of the feeling-oriented uh, crowd, well, your devotion and your feelings are are important, but caring about the other person implies that you care about what they think, about what they said, about what they told you to do. So that's not a difficult argument. You can fill in this middle ground without being so polar.
0: Well, I think that's the most helpful approach. I mean, if I let's say I'm talking to somebody who believes in one saved, always saved, right? Mm-hmm. If I don't respect that position at all, I'm not going to engage. I'm just going to be like, oh, well, you're a moron.
1: Yeah, I invoke the power of dismissiveness. Right, right. But that's, and, yeah.
0: that's disrespectful.
1: It's disrespectful. Yeah. You know,
0: it, Whereas a re- more respectful thing is to say, okay, well, hey, let's talk about this, or would you be willing to talk about this? And then if, if that person is the kind of person that is willing to consider the possibility that they might— just possibly be wrong that's my minimum criteria to engage with people
1: yeah absolutely (laughs) um
0: I, i once met this uh this this older catholic gentleman and he said to me i was born a catholic i'm gonna die a catholic and there's nothing you can ever say that'll ever change my mind and I was just like, "All right, well, have a nice day." Talk to <laughs> you Goodbye. So, I mean, like, what are you going to do with that, right? No. I mean, he's. No. I hope, I hope he's right because he's yeah. got no alternative here. So I think, yeah, I- engaging in the in the discussion, getting to the reasons for why somebody believes what they believe, and really looking at, okay, these are your difficult texts, these are my difficult texts. Let, let's let's get down to the nitty gritty. Th- this is not happening by and large in Christianity, right?
1: No, you know, institutions tend to co-opt the truth as an instrument of their own defense. You adopt it as an identity, it becomes part of who you are. It, you know, it's creedal. You invoke the creed, that's all there is. You're not interested in dialogue anymore, you've already got your answer. So uh, I, that's not something I'm interested in. I don't want these things to be bludgeons for you know, inter-denominational <laughs> conflict. You know, it's basically started this entire process to find the truth, to find out more about God and uh, the new covenant. So uh, stopping and starting to use the truth as as a weapon is, is not consistent with, with what I'm trying to do.
0: Right. And I think so many times these creeds, these confessions, these statements of belief are just leaned on as if they have this... Holy Spirit authority, or mm-hmm. some sort of like sanctified aura about them, yeah. and a lot of times they are written in very beautiful language. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I recognize that. Uh, I mean, Mozart when when Mozart wrote his mass and they sang the Nicene Creed, yeah, it did sound really nice. Okay, I'm, I'm not I'm not denying that, mm. but um, you know that doesn't mean it's true. Yeah, and. I think being willing to always, you know, like that Latin phrase, semper reformandum, you know, always reforming, always being willing to consider where you might be wrong. I mean, this is this whole idea of humility you speak of in the paper as well, Mm -hmm. that, hey, it's possible you could be wrong on this. So let's work from there and uh, not assume that what you've always believed or what the majority... That's another thing too, Chuck, right? The majority. Are you saying that all of Christianity has been wrong for all of these centuries? God would never let that happen. How could that ever happen? (laughs) What what do you say to Uh, that one?
1: That's a tough one, but uh, people have been wrong about many things for a long time, and the idea that they're wrong about religion is... It's just not out of the realm of possible. And, of course, I would say that once you take a sincere look into it, it becomes very clear. Yeah. So I, I agree. It's it's a difficult idea to find out that people that you have loved and respected your entire life are, you know, dramatically wrong. That that will shake your world. There's no way around that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm still dealing with that. But the nice thing about truth is that it, it is really unassailable. Right. You know, once, once you've find, you know, that bedrock. You may have to, you know, squish through the muck to find it. But once you're there, you're there. It is a nice place to be in terms of confidence, if not in terms of fellowship. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. Later on, you talk about balance. And i uh, just going to quote this little part. It says, if we divorce ourselves from the Orthodox family, and you have Orthodox in quotes, do we then have to declare them our enemies? What do you say on that? I mean, if these people who are sort of like in the the mainstream and are the main movers and shakers in the institutions of Christianity in our world, if they are so wrong on so many of these things, doesn't that by definition make them our enemies?
1: Well, the the idea that I'm trying to get at here is that they may, in fact, declare themselves your enemy. But do you have to engage in the same tactics? You know, are you going to be without love on your part? I don't think that's how it works. I think the truth should foster love and respect. And uh, it's not about creating these social categories Uh, At all. Uh, I I go on to say it's possible to hold a high view of truth and to allow our ignorance of people's hearts and their ultimate destiny to remain. And I think that's all it takes is you can value the truth and you don't have to castigate at the same time.
0: And that would be what you call bullish dogmatism. right? (laughs) unkind closed-mindedness. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you and I have probably both seen that on either side of this thing where you've seen biblical unitarians that lash out with vitriol and hatred and bitterness and, uh, you know, out of a place of hurt. Absolutely, yeah. And then you've seen it on the other side, too, where there's arrogance and there's sarcasm. There's like, oh, you silly non-Trinitarian. Of course, yeah. Yeah. And really, you know, ultimately, if I, I love how you put this, that a lack of love on our part would suggest we do not possess the truth. And if we have what Jesus had, then we will be able to have that balance. We'll be able to strike that balance between love and truth that he struck in his own ministry and that his apostles who came after him struck in their own worlds and their own lives so Jesus was incredibly tender uh, especially to the to the person who was humble and earnest-hearted and then he he could be incredibly sharp to those who were his critics you read Matthew 23 all those woes there oh I mean, yes. He like it's like thunder coming coming out of his mouth. It's like mm-hmm. ba boom, ba boom. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's really harsh stuff. Now, I don't think Jesus was being unloving. I think he was confronting them where they needed to be confronted. And love is not the same thing as being nice. No, um, I agree. And I think there's a lot of confusion on that. They're, they say, well, the truth is narrow. The truth is excluding. And so, there's no way you can have love and truth at the same time. But what what, what you're saying and what I see in these examples in the New Testament is that you can have both. You can have yes. genuine love, and you can have genuine truth. And I would even go so far as to say that if you have a friend who is a Christian, and they believe in things that you know are wrong, that the loving thing to do is to talk to them about it and see if they're open to discovering the truth. I mean, Absolutely. Doesn't that make sense?
1: Yes, and I agree so much with what you just described and the combination of truth and love that they are... They are in harmony. They, they're not in conflict at all.
0: Did you ever hear Dave Hickson's faith story? He's no. a guy from Indiana. Uh, he's told it a couple times at the Theo, but I, I wasn't sure if it was a year you were there. He was in this small town in Ohio, and he came from, a I think, a worldwide Church of God background. Uh, are you familiar with that at all?
1: That, that's Armstrong. Yeah,
0: yeah, Armstrong. Yeah. You know, so they believed in the kingdom, but they believed that the father and the son were both one God family or something,
1: A, entity of some kind. Yeah. yeah,
0: and they're very strong in keeping the law. So anyhow, he he kind of like worked his way out of that. Him and his wife together, and he discovered just through reading scriptures that the father alone is truly God, and that the son is his Messiah, his son, his human son, and so on. He's looking all around. And he, he starts to discover, you know, I think this is just when the Internet was starting to become really accessible. And uh, he starts to discover some Anthony Buzzard stuff. And he um, somehow finds out that in his own town, which only had like a few churches in it, one of the churches was the exact position that he had studied himself to.
1: <laughs> Jealous!
0: Right? So, and, and it's like one of the oldest ones in the Church of God denomination. He even knew people who attended that church. They even had played ping pong together. He had even visited that church That's and hilarious. yet nobody anywhere along the line had cared enough about him or was brave enough, I suppose, to bring up these subjects yeah. and to try to convince him. Because if that and, and ironically now today he's a past he is the pastor of that very church. Oh, that is right. <laughs> that, yeah. that he discovered. So, uh, I mean, what is that? That's like it's just us being chicken or, uh, you know, not being willing to put ourselves out there for fear of the backlash of being called a heretic ourselves, yeah. right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. I talk a little bit later about the boldness that comes with knowing the truth. And, of course, it's boldness with a, a care and concern for for people who probably genuinely believe that they are following God, so there is a fear of, of that whole heretic thing. But when you when you're dealing with people as individuals, then of course it's, it's just care and concern for them that would prompt you to 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 ask some questions.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think of it like crossing a stream, and you have these stones. You're wearing shoes. You don't want to get your feet wet. So the way to cross a stream is to go from one stone to the next until you get across. What I would recommend is uh if somebody's doing that, they tap the stone with with just the toes on their on the, on their foot to to see if that stone is stable ground mm-hmm. and if it can bear any weight before actually putting all your weight or jumping to it right yeah and uh, I think that's a lot of what we can do in conversations with people is we could just sort of like tap them and see you know is this person able to have a reasonable conversation about this subject? Do they have interest in it? Because a lot of times that's my issue in my context here is, like, people are so secular that they don't even care.
1: No, it doesn't matter at all, Uh,
0: yeah. uh, Or people are so, like, heresy hunters that, you know, even the slightest idea of questioning the Trinity, especially, they go right to the ceiling. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, just like tapping people to see, like, is there interest here? Can we have a discussion? Have you ever thought about this? And just to see if you can even have that conversation. I feel like we're not doing that, and that's something that we need to be doing.
1: I've had um, a certain amount of success with the the conversation about uh, epistemology or foundations and how to read the Bible. So many people have that question of, you know, if we all have the same Bible, how do we end up in so many different camps? So that's a fun kind of gateway conversation that says, you know, so how do we read the Bible? Should we believe things that the apostles didn't believe? Yeah. And that's been a fun gateway conversation. Yeah, that's phenomenal.
0: But, that's phenomenal because yeah. you, you need that, Chuck. You need that yeah. intro gateway, as you call it, because yeah. just jumping right into something, you could easily offend somebody or, or they could yes you to death and they're not interested at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so like having those little pre conversations, like, hey, you know, if the apostles believed differently than you do, are you okay with that? Or or that you could yeah. be even broader than we do? Are you okay with that? I mean, yeah. How do how do we justify that?
1: You know, once those seeds are planted, they um, they don't go away quickly. I've I've had friends that have been haunted by that question for years before they actually went further with it. So. Uh, I recommend that.
0: Yeah, you say later on, the biblical Unitarian crowd that I've encountered so far is very much missing that rugged, vivid, self-standing identity. Rummaging around in history doesn't seem to provide it, and classic Unitarian denominations don't quite do it either. My children need something besides heretic as their Christian label.
1: We've adopted heretic as our Christian label because it's packed with irony and it makes other people uncomfortable, and so we think that's funny. But, you know, this section of the paper was about identity. The idea here is that we've had a really hard time uh, getting truly separated from orthodoxy to say, just to leave it entirely behind and to go on with with the new truths that we've discovered, it's like everything has been related to orthodoxy in some way. We chose heretic as a you know, a label, as an identity. But of course, that's totally related to orthodoxy. And so it's just difficult to say... Uh, let's say you use Christian, for example. Well, what does that mean? So you use biblical Unitarian, but of course, nobody knows what that means. Right. And uh, so you're kind of left in this, this place of figuring out how to go forward and but i absolutely believe it's it's key we need to be done with orthodoxy we need to to leave it behind and uh go on with the new
0: right right i mean how do you think of yourself do you have a do you use restorationist or what label do you like frankly i
1: haven't found one i mean biblical unitarian is as close as it comes right right at this point yeah you know.
0: i like biblical <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I don't know how much I nope. love Unitarian. I feel like it's it's a bit embattled and it it's such a narrow aspect yeah. of my the overall whole package. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I feel exactly the same way. Yeah.
0: I remember I was in a seminary at Boston University and we would have these lunches on Wednesday afternoon and I guess you were supposed to go to chapel and then get the lunch afterwards and uh I I didn't really go to chapel because it was Let's put it this way. They didn't believe in the Bible, so it it just wasn't really this sort of thing that I could participate in meaningfully. But anyhow, at the lunch afterwards, there's all these different groups, and so they would always like ask you, like, well, what are you? And uh, it was a United Methodist Seminary, so a lot of them were United Methodists, and then there were a few uh, Unitarian Universalists there, and there were some other denominations and Pretty much no evangelicals at all because it's a liberal school, which is why I could go there without getting kicked out. Hmm. But um, sure. anyhow, uh, I remember trying to, like, figure out, like, what am I going to say when they ask me that question? Because if I mm-hmm. use the U-word, I'm done. You know, like, they're going to think I'm a U-U, Unitarian Universalist. Yeah, uh, they would actually say that's exactly. a good thing. But. <laughs> So I'm like, I started no, stringing not. together such like a long list. I'm like, all right, I'm an Adventist because I believe in the kingdom. I'm an Anabaptist because I believe in literal obedience to Jesus. Uh, I guess you could call me a Charismatic because I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, I'm a mm-hmm. U- Unitarian because I believe God is one. And there were probably like two or three others that I that I thought of like on the fly, and <laughs> I'm like, so. How do I <laughs> yeah. how do I string this together no, and not exactly. sound like a freak? Mm-hmm. And uh so that's why I was I was thinking restorationist is is helpful. I wish I had known of that label at the time because then it's like whatever my current belief is, that's still my my identity or my position maybe not identity, but my label. But then I have to explain what a restorationist is because they're Probably not going to know what that is either. So yeah, Sorry. I'm kind of flummoxed, uh, just yeah. <laughs> just
1: as much as you are. <laughs> I see a real pitfall in uh, this issue of identity and orienting yourself. The idea of of creating an oppositional identity, where you're you're an anti-trinitarian. Or right. you're an anti-heaven when you die, you're you're an anti-this or that. Uh, that becomes a major temptation or or pitfall for people on my journey anyway, that I've seen repeatedly that it's easy to become anti-whatever and, and you find people with that in common. And so what you what you do is you sit around and talk about, you know, what's wrong with the Trinity or or what's wrong with this or what's wrong with that you know it's a human tendency but it's to be avoided oppositional identities are are not good
0: right well we, they we have to go on yeah. yeah they they lead to divisiveness mm-hmm. and you know sometimes division is good if you're dividing yourself from sin or uh-huh. from people who are influencing you to sin. Certainly that is a positive thing. You know, bad company corrupts good morals, as it mm-hmm. says in 1 Corinthians 15. But um, you're absolutely right. You don't want to define yourself that way. And it's easy to get sort of into this mode where you're like so gung-ho for what you're not and that you're on this whole quest for others. You know, probably the best person I've seen demonstrating a an excellent combination of evangelistic desire and outward focus combined with a solid belief in in what he understood was to be true was uh, what Joel Hemphill brought to the table. He would be at like a gas station and he's like trying to witness to the guy and preach to him about the one God. Because like he's in the South and everybody down there believes in some form of Christianity or at least mm-hmm. generally, not everybody, but generally. And so it's not like a question of, well, let me tell you about Jesus for the first time. It's more like, hey, um, so he's not God. And <laughs> what, what, he, what he said was, and this just really changed changed my perspective on it. He said, I just assume that they would want to know the truth.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. You know?
0: And it was just like, oh, that's such a refreshing perspective on it. It's assuming the best about somebody. And if they prove him wrong and they don't really want to have a conversation or maybe they're not ready at that point in their life, then that's fine. God's mm-hmm. not forcing people. We see throughout Scripture He doesn't force people. At least then He'll find out if they do want to know, and you won't have another Dave Hickson incident where you've got somebody that you're even friends with or a coworker with that has the answers that your soul's longing for, and they never tell you. So where does that land us? I mean, how do you refer to... Orthodox, you know, I don't even like that you use the term Orthodox because it's like no, it's like admitting too much.
1: (laughs) Exactly, and you know, I I use it parenthetically throughout the whole paper because it's their their identity, uh, but I don't want to grant them that high ground as I mentioned in the paper. Right. Right. Um,
0: So, do you think of them as brothers, or what do you? How do you think of mainstream evangelicals?
1: I at this point can't call them brother even though I, I recognize that they might be, because I'm confident that the bulk of orthodoxy is, in fact, false. Right. So that's kind of where I'm left. I know orthodoxy is false. Uh, they may be saved. God may be gracious. They may be journeying into the truth later, just as I did. But at this point, I can't be uh, loyal to the apostles as I read them and call them brother.
0: Right. So our message to them, as you say, is repent and believe.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. If you did call them brother, you're just not likely to say that to them. Right. Exactly.
0: This sets up an advantage of being more evangelistic if you realize that somebody is not already a brother. And my, my own personal, this is just personal philosophy on the whole salvation issue is, I'm going to go ahead and assume that anyone who does not believe and repent because of the biblical gospel i I just assume that they're not saved and Mm -hmm. yet at the same time i recognize that god is more just and more merciful than i am Mm -hmm. and that it's entirely within the realm of possibility that god may open the door for so many more but i can't bank my life on that i can't assume that and then on the last day before Christ, you know, you've got the two lines, and—well, I don't know if there'll be lines, but just imagining it. You've got somebody in the uh, the judgment line, and I'm in the line of eternal life, and, we're, and we're, we're standing next to each other, sort of like catching each other's eye from across the way. And they turn to me, and they say, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> to me, that's yeah. a horrible nightmare of a scenario, and yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't want to be in that situation. And it's like, look— let me err on the side of telling too many people Absolutely. on yeah. the other side of this thing. And I feel like you're right. If, if we just say, oh, well, they believe in Jesus, they're saved. Maybe they have some things wrong, but they're going to be fine. I think if we take that approach, we're doomed. Yeah. You Because know, we're not uh, going to have our own identity, and we're not going to spread the message, and we're not going to have that Joel Hempel assumption of, well, they would want to know the truth. Yeah. Uh, we're just going to take the easy way out.
1: There's another aspect to this that is um, kind of practical, and that is that if you don't want to be confrontational and you'd like to find fellowship in some local church that doesn't believe what you believe, ultimately it's just not going to work. We've tried this to a certain extent. Your fellowship is going to be corrupted by the incompatibility of your ideas, that you you may go and sing the songs and you may listen to the preacher, but you're going to have to run a translator in your head if... If right. you're yeah. if you're going to try to assume that, that they are in the same camp as you, and of course you are going to have to keep your mouth shut because that's not going to work to yeah. say that Jesus yeah. is not God.
0: You don't want to make that as an absolute rule because there could always be the scenario where the pastor is open to consider it. Certainly some things like that have, have happened in the past. I, I, I know of at least two scenarios, one in New Jersey, one in Scotland, where either the pastor basically said, "Hey, I think you're right." So, but I'm not I'm not like willing to preach against the Trinity, so I'm just never going to preach the Trinity. I'm just going to preach what's in the Bible. What's clearly <laughs> there. And it was kind of like a demilitarized zone I see. <laughs> for for worship. And in in another scenario, w- one friend of mine actually ended up taking over a Baptist church even though they were just evangelical or whatever he somehow finagled his way in there and took it over and and started teaching the truth. Now, I don't know that that worked out long term. (laughs) But I think it would be great to see whole churches turning. Absolutely. Well, certainly it happened with Jeremy Drake. Did did you ever meet him? No. No. He came came one year with a whole uh, bunch of guys from his church in uh, Collinsville, Illinois. And, yeah, I mean, if the pastor does change his mind, oftentimes the church will stay with him. And that's what happened there. The whole, the whole church basically, I mean, some people left, but pretty much the church stayed with them.
1: So it uh, does happen.
0: Yeah, it does happen. But, Thank I mean, you. we don't want to get people's hopes up and be like, hey, you know, you just tell them the truth and they all just believe. No, typically you get kicked out. Sure. I don't know what percentage it is, but it's very high. Uh, <laughs> so you want, you want to, you know, keep that in mind. But I, I wouldn't say it has to be that way. But you're right. You definitely would have to run a translator the whole time. That's about as much time as we have for this conversation, Chuck. Thanks for bringing up this subject. It's really an important one.
1: It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Well, that's it for this
0: conversation. If you want to read Chuck Whitlock's paper, it's really interesting and worth checking out. You can do that at restitutio.org. Just search for Interview 40, How Much Does Truth Matter with Chuck Whitlock, and you'll be able to... Read what he wrote there. It's also in the show notes for this episode. As you scroll down past the links, you'll see it there. If you want to email Chuck, uh, you can reach him at chuckwitlocks.net. At That's W H I T L O X.net. I also have links to his blacksmith forges if you're interested in finding out more about his, uh, his family business. As far as Dale Tuggy's presentation on John Locke's minimalist definition of Christians, You can see his presentation called Heretic, Four Approaches to Dropping H-Bombs, which he has on YouTube. He also has a, a podcast, and there's a paper that goes along with it, and I have links to all that as well. That's about it for today. For this episode, I did want to mention that we have a major event coming up here in the Albany, New York area. If anybody would like to come, it's called Kingdom Fest. We have it every year at the end of the summer. It's our end of summer celebration here at Living Hope Community Church, and people come in from all over the region. You won't want to miss this awesome weekend. Our theme is Walk by the Spirit. It's September 7th to the 9th, and it's an all-ages event, so we have a full children's program. We get a big tent and put it out over one of our parking lots for food, and lots of people come, lots of Bible teachings. I'll be teaching this year. I know that uh, my father, Vince, will be teaching, John Courtright, John Truitt, Dan Gallagher, John McCabe, Victor Gluckin, hopefully. We have to talk to him about that still. And I think it'll be just a wonderful time together focused on walking by the Spirit. So come. We'd love to see you. If you want to register for that, if you want to get more information about that, You just need to stop by to LHIM.org, that stands for Living Hope International Ministries, LHIM.org, and you'll see it on the sidebar there, Kingdom Fest, and you can get more information and sign up there. I did want to mention just one thing, and that is the early bird deadline for that, which saves you $15, is August 18th. So if you're thinking about it, better to do it sooner than later so you can save a little bit of money. A number of you came to this event last year who hadn't been to any of our other events, and it was really exciting to meet you, so hopefully that happens again this year. Well, that's it for today. We'll be back next week, and in the meantime, remember, the truth has nothing to fear.